Hello, everyone. This is Matt Yankovic. Welcome you to another Hoss Talks Foss podcast. I'm Percona's Hoss, the head of open source strategy, Matt Yankovic, welcoming you to another deep dive into the open source space. We really appreciate you hanging out, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Brian Walters. He's here to talk to us a little bit about his journey in the open source space, his journey from Oracle to Percona, and also uh, his thoughts on some of the monetization of open source. We've had been having a lot of discussions around the elastic changes, around MongoDB, SSPL, other things over the last few weeks. And we thought Brian would be a great resource to bring in and talk with us about this as well. Brian, why don't you give us a little background on yourself and tell us uh, where you came from? Sure, hang on. Um, and everybody who's watching and listening, uh, glad to be part of this. Uh, so uh, I run the uh, solution engineering team here at Percona. Uh, I have been working in technology and databases for more than more years than I care to admit. Um, you know, as you mentioned, like, prior to Percona, I came from uh, Oracle, uh, doing the engineering side of pre-sales as well. <clears throat> excuse me, the engineering side of sales as well. Uh, and prior to that, I was uh, working in large-scale databases for a very large database warehousing company. And then I had a, 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 a early start in my career as a production DBA. Um, my exposure to open source actually started really early in my career. When During those production DBA years, I was deploying things like Oracle Database, uh, on um, early versions of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So we're talking about like the RHEL 4 days. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yep. Way back when I got my my first RHEL certification. Um, I, I don't know if it's way back. If, I, if, if like for me, it seems more fresh, but I, I think I've suspended my age like years yeah. ago, right? I, I think when yeah. you've been around for as long as we have, we, we, we tend to Exactly. Nice poetic about those days. Exactly. Well, you know, as open source started to take off, and uh, this is back in the day when commercial Unixes were all the rage, you know, so um, the majority of the market was probably held by Solaris and HPOX and AIX at that time. So um, when I went into the large scale data warehousing space, um, one of the goals that I had there was to actually bring large scale databases to Linux as a, as a platform. Uh, so I got to take part in that endeavor, um, which was, you know, incredibly rewarding. Um, and then, uh, coincidentally, uh, since I had been working with Oracle for so long, um, Oracle had recruited me out of that company because they were coming out with a proprietary large-scale platform as well uh, called Exadata. And that's when I crossed—that's when I made the crossover into the dark side and started working under a sales organization. So um, I will actually throw out right now that I know that a lot of what I may uh, talk about today is inherently biased because I do roll up under the sales organization. So I may talk about uh, consumers and how consumers, you know, interact with the open source community and how um, consumers view open source. Uh, and uh, I will admit I have a vested interest in large-scale companies contributing to the open source community because, well, that's what I do. Well, well, we won't hold it against you too much. <laughs> we'll try and be a little easy on you because sure. of that. But let, let's jump back a second because there was a couple interesting points that you made. So I remember the days of AIX, HPUX, and, you know, Solaris. What was your favorite? Come on, this is, this is like everybody had like the favorite Unix. No. It's it's kind of funny that you say that. So uh, my favorite was Linux, and I'm hands down, you know, with, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I was trained on Solaris. 
Um, and I came in just as, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to come in as the company that I was working with was, you know, tinkering with Linux. So I got to be one of the first people to actually test running Oracle on Linux. Uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I was like, this is great. This is the way of the future. And I knew at that point in time that um, the commercial OSs were just, they were toast. I knew that there was no way that um, they were going to survive this because everything that I had in my little bag of scripts on Solaris, you know, and I was already using Bash on Solaris. So everything that I had in my little bag of scripts, it just worked on Linux and I could run this anywhere. You know, um, I remember um, some of the guys that I worked with, like it was this big deal if they got a little spark box at home. Um, and it was huge, you know, and this is back, you know, we're in our twenties and those things were expensive. They really, were very expensive. Really expensive. And I was like, you guys can have all the spark boxes you want. I have four Linux boxes. <laughs> yeah, I, I always coveted the, the the Steve Jobs next box. I don't know if you remember those. I do. Where, where, where when yeah. he, he went over from Apple, he created those next machines. And yeah. uh, when I was in college, we had an entire lab made to next. You know, it was a, mm -hmm. it was a next lab for the, the, the CS people. Well, and so all the... I actually forked my efforts. Like um, a lot of people don't know this, but Spark had an Intel OS at one, or sorry, Solaris had an Intel OS at one time. So oh, to, yes. yeah, yeah. to try and actually get some toys that I could work with at home, I had Solaris for Intel running at home on, on a few machines also. Oh yeah, I mean, a lot of people did. A lot of people did. But it was it was always fun for, for us in the CS lab because we had the special computers that none of the normal people would know how to use. And yeah. so when they would come in and all the Windows machines were taken, they would go back to like the, the, the you know, the next lab and they would like try and log in and they're like, I, I don't know what to do. Right. Um, and so, it, you know, it, we, we would always get great fun and joy out of that because, you know, it's that way. But my background, it, it's it's funny because um, I worked at a, a GE owned company. So GE big company. So they had a little bit of everything. Um, the division that I worked for was very HPUX. And then I went to somewhere that was very AIX. Um, and Solaris tended to um, start to see the decline but by the time that Linux started to come in and it was really the redheaded stepchild, which is funny because I worked for MySQL, which got bought by Sun. And then we were like, oh, we love Solaris. But <laughs> such is life. Now, you mentioned you worked with a lot of very large databases. Tell us about like the large databases back in the day, because honestly, the databases that I see today, I would have considered very large yeah. 10 years ago, but yeah. now they're tiny. Right. I, know, I think the um, I think the biggest probably market lesson that could be learned based upon that idea of how size is relative to the time that you live in um, is don't name your company off of a database size. <laughs> yeah, it, like 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 the gig group or something, you know, <laughs> or Teradata. Teradata, yes, yeah, for yeah. a terabyte of data. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also, if you're going to release a product, don't name it by a, a size as well, like Exadata, um, which was Oracle's response to Teradata, because Teradata, you know, a terabyte of data now is nothing. I have that in my laptop. Yeah, but and, and well, and it's funny you say that. Like, I never put that together. Like that, it was well. If you're going to be Terra, we're going to be Exa. But it, yeah. is that what happened? Like, it was really just we're going to one up you. That's literally what happened. Well, <laughs> I, you know, again, this is. 
take it for a grain of salt. Um, I did work for both companies and, and, uh, uh, you know, I worked with both products pretty extensively. It's funny, you know, hundreds of terabytes at the time was just unheard of. It was unreal. It was mind blowing. Um, this was the birth of the MTP platform, you know, which today we look at as um, really it was like the, the birth of sharding, essentially, except that it was sharding down at the at the storage layer. So Teradata was a pioneer in this field. And at the time that they were doing it, when they first started, which was, you know, the late 1990s, uh, it was groundbreaking. It was earth shattering. They went through the early 2000s. And I remember there was this constant um, battle. Like, so there was in, uh, in corporate, in corporate uh, uh, circles, um, they had a marketing campaign that was known as Stealth Marketing. Uh, their slogan was, if you need us, you know us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, hey, that's okay. Exactly. I guess. And so for the big boys, and at the time, the big boys were Walmart, of course, because even back then they were the world's largest retailer and um, Bell, actually. And oh, if okay. You, yep. if you think about the transaction volume that Bell had at that time, it's just simple math of, you know, how many phone calls happen in a single city in one given hour. And every single one of those is a log transaction. How many now happen in a county? How many happen in a state? You know, how many happen in a country? Then every single one of those entries was funneled into a Teradata database. Uh, so at the time, it was literally groundbreaking work, work. This was big data before big data was a thing, you know, from the internet days. This was um, brick and mortar's version of big data at the mm. time. So those two companies had this constant head-to-head -head battle over who had the largest commercial database. And we're talking about like warehouse floor rooms packed with server racks. And the database size was like 300 terabytes. Right. Because, well, and let's be honest, I mean, at that point, it was probably, you know, 18 or 36 gig, you know, yeah. SCSI drives that, yeah. that, you know, you cobble together in a giant EMC, you know, um, yeah. uh, storage array, which took yeah. up, you know, a, a warehouse in and of itself. Are you taking me back, man? Memories. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, like, I remember those days, right? You know, it's like, whoa, they got 72 gig. Mm -hmm. You know, like like drives now. Whoa, and their 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 10k RPM. They they had a guy whose full time job was to walk the aisles with a cart full of drives, and he just oh, looked, it just replaced the the dead one. Just look for the blinking failure light. You know, and that was one of their claims to fame is that it was that resilient. All you had to do was see the light, replace the drive, and you were self healing. All right, yeah. Oh, wonderful. So yeah, that, was, it, that was the one that I actually got to port to. I got to install the first Teradata system on Linux uh, for an online retail company in the uh, Salt Lake City area. Oh, okay. Well, hey, that's that's cool. I mean, and you mentioned like, you know, like, like the telephony stuff uh, from Bell. And even like a lot of the open source, you know, I mean, obviously Bell Labs created Unix, right? So, mm -hmm. you, you know, you had that kind of, uh, background and pedigree, but you you saw that a lot of the early days of innovation were driven by companies like you know the telephone companies, mm -hmm. you know uh, MySQL uh, cluster right enterprise cluster uh, is uh, built originally for that purpose like NDB it was built for caller ID that's exact I mean like because so when you call someone and you want the caller ID to pop up you need it immediately, and mm -hmm. so you see that 
innovation is really pushed by the size and the speed that these companies really need. And so it's really interesting to see um, how that evolves. Yeah. Yeah. So and, you know, I think that we're still seeing that today as well. Um, that torch is, you know, still being carried. You look at companies like Facebook and the work that they've done with Myrox and that platform, you know, and it's, 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 as you said, it's the need of the market that you're serving that drives the leaders in that market to do and build really cool, really new things. Yeah. And, and Brian, you, you know, you've talked with hundreds of companies over the last few years and, you know, you've seen like the pains of some of these really large organizations and Percona has, you know, users who span from somebody doing a hobby to fortune 100 fortune 10 uh, mm -hmm. companies what what are you seeing as those those trends what what's plaguing those big companies right now what what do you see kind of consistently over and over again yeah um well in the last few years i don't think that it's any secret that the largest trend in the world has been to move towards open source most of this is financially motivated it's not motivated by innovation uh for the most part um and, you know, the two do go hand in hand to some extent, uh, but some of the proprietary, I'll just say, you know, some of the problems with Oracle are not only that um, they were really expensive for a really, really, really long time. And when I say really expensive, I'm talking, you know, if you were a Fortune 10 company, then you probably had an annual contract in the tens of millions of dollars uh, range, essentially. That's a lot of capital, especially in today's technology market. You can do a lot with that, uh, with various cloud providers or open source technologies, you know, things like that. Um, uh, so you have the financial side of it, but then you also have a, the licensing deployment model side of it. And it was extremely restrictive. Um, I'll give you an example. To the best of my knowledge, Oracle still, and, and I could be wrong, somebody's going to call me out on this. Uh, uh, it, it will have changed within the last year and I'm not aware of it. Um, but up until about a year ago, um, Oracle still had a very restrictive policy about running their database in um, virtual machines where, you know, if you were running on a platform like VMware, they required you to license the entire VMware farm, like your whole VMware estate. So because it could one, potentially run on any of the servers. Well, you know, those types of policies, they drastically hinder innovation because, you know, it becomes a massive risk now to actually put an Oracle database into a VMware farm because the cost could just explode out of control overnight, you know, um, where maybe you didn't intend to do that. Maybe you wanted to do, follow a different path. And here we are in the day and age where, you know, containerized databases inside of Kubernetes are open. And we've got, you know, these companies were dealing with policies that were based off of technology that was 20 years old. So there was the financial side of it, but then I think that the, um, the stranglehold that the policies had on them for their own growth and innovation just finally became intolerable. And so that's why we started seeing this massive exodus away from these proprietary platforms and into open source. Um, now, I think that the biggest challenge that they have, obviously, that type of change comes with, you know, the basic retooling. How do we retrain all of our people? Um, and then there's internal resistance. These companies have, you know, large pools of database operators who were have been working for 25 years, like myself, in the world of Oracle. Um, and many of them actually think that it was really great technology. I'm one of them. I think that the Oracle database is great technology. 
Uh, and I had built, you know, a life around that at one time. And some of these people are still, you know, they've been doing it for so long that, you know, they're more worried. They're closer to the retirement than they are. The next technology is the way that they look at the world. Um, so how do you retool people like that? How do you help them to make the shift? Um, it, it can be somewhat traumatic. Uh, and this creates an internal resistance, which uh, is, is difficult to overcome. I think, you know, the the resistance amongst the, the the staff coupled with the amount of time that it takes to either find comparable solutions to what they had in Oracle or re-architect their applications to the capabilities of open source. And the capabilities of open source and this type of re-architecting are kind of touching on one of the things that I was hoping we would talk about today too. Um, there are gaps there. You know, there are gaps between what the commercial solutions have and what the open source community can provide. And so when you couple the effort of a, a new company that has, or sorry, an enterprise company who's made a new decision to try and make the shift and they're dealing with internal pressures of resistance who are more than willing to highlight the deficiencies and the gap between open source and proprietary. That combination is probably your single biggest challenge. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up that internal kind of politics or the internal teams, because this is a real thing. I know I'll give you a, a real example without naming names. Uh, we've worked with a company who their executive team was financially bonused and gold on how many Oracle to MySQL yeah. databases they moved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the executives have a powerful desire to move, but yeah. they couldn't get the development teams to buy in. Mm -hmm. um, and because they couldn't get the development teams to buy in, it just kind of stopped. Yeah, it, you know they 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 did it for about two years where they're like move 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 and then they settled into okay new applications will be moved to a Postgres or a MySQL environment yeah. because every time you would try to do a migration or or look at it another excuse would come up it would be like oh well you don't have this feature or you don't have that functionality or this data type isn't supported or this other thing doesn't work. And because you continually had that pushback, it delayed and delayed and delayed. And eventually, the executive team missed their goals. They moved on to other projects or got shuffled around. Someone yes. new came in. Oh, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to go this other route. Yeah. And so it's that kind of like expectation from some people. Well, if we just wait long enough, this new fad will go away. It'll just, it'll just stop. And so you get that a lot yeah. in those larger companies. But what we're starting to see, and I'm seeing even now, is a lot of these larger companies are bringing in people who have worked at Silicon Valley firms or worked mm -hmm. at, you know, whether it's the Facebooks or the Twitters or the Amazons or these, these stalwarts, because they want that innovation. They, or maybe they just want the scale at the cost savings, as you mentioned, to, to, to do that. So it's an interesting, you know, model and, mm -hmm. and thing that we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, and I've seen the exact same thing. Uh, usually, you know, committing to Greenfield, going on open source technologies or cloud-based technologies, that's the first decision that almost everybody that I've spoken with universally has made. Everything Greenfield is going to go this way. Now, unless, what I've also seen is that unless they've made the concerted effort, as you mentioned, to bring in a fresh team to work on this, 
more times than not, they end up with just a reproduction of, you know, what they had in the legacy systems, but built on open source. And that's when they run up against the feature gap problem is because they're trying to re-architect like for like in open source when um, maybe the features are absent or maybe there's valid reasons why that feature doesn't exist in the open source community. And there are known architectures that are out there for working around it. But then you're back into the idea of the learning curve. So, um, yeah, I think that um, people in my generation, um, you know, they carry a bit of the responsibility in tech for, um, you know, getting their skills current, re- retooling themselves and, you know, realizing that, as you, I like the way you put it, this fat isn't going away. <clears throat> All the advancements that we've made in cost optimization and workload consolidation and, uh, uh, low cost deployment, CI/CD pipelines, you know, continuous improvement. These things, you know, continuous deployment—they're not going away. Um, this is the new reality, and this is the new tech world that we live in today. Uh, yesterday, yesterday. Right. Yeah, and I think you know we—you know—you've mentioned before, kind of like this gap between open source and, and the closed mm-hmm. source solutions. Most of the applications we look at and we see. Uh, that are migrating or need to be modernized. They mm-hmm. require application changes because a lot of them are Absolutely. built upon technology or features that don't exist. Yeah. And so I'll that gap ones, is- they're, they're Not only application changes, but they require full stack architecture changes. Yeah. They're, a lift and shift is a very difficult thing. It does, doesn't really happen that often. Mm. No, no. I mean, especially That's, on the database side. That's that's probably the highest uh, failure factor right there is attempts to just straight lift and shift to open source. Yeah, I mean it's it's it it very rarely works. I mean even mm-hmm. when you're talking about you know medium size applications and you know not yeah. a lot of you know things, it's hard. It really is. Yeah. And so you know we've seen this. You know we 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 mentioned you know, like this move to open source, you know, and as we start to evolve, you mentioned that there's gaps in the the, the the open side. And I know we've had a lot of these changes with licenses and we've seen companies, whether it's Mongo or Elastic now, uh, Redis has changed their license, Confluence changes license. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we've, we've seen like this move towards, let's go ahead and let's change things. So we're going to restrict who competes with us. And, you know, it's, you know, I, I've taken the position and I'm going to be talking about this in, uh, at Fostem that this is really bad for innovation and it's really bad for the market in general because it's really more of a monopolistic play to say, I want to control everything. And so I'm curious on your thoughts. No, I'm there with you on that. Um, to, to some extent, uh, so I went and, um, you know, I, I went and actually covered a couple of things from your blog. I love how you described the um, veil of openness uh, that uh, that some of these companies use as a lure to get people, you know, um, somewhat addicted to their platform. With and, and quite frankly, they're they're using this um, they're using the willingness of the open source community to be open and helpful. As a lure and a trap for us. Um, and that's just, you know, that's what I see uh, in my perception of it. Uh, and I've actually heard it from several customers where um, I'm not going to actually go specifically to the names of these vendors, 
but it might be something where they started out um, like pouring resources into the community and pouring resources into their commercial customer base to help these customers, you know, address a lot of the problems that I just talked about, retool their development environments, retool their development uh, uh, methodologies, adopt agile methodologies, all of these things, you know, build out complete infrastructures um, that their stuff fits nicely into and, you know, shower them with all of this love and attention and then pull the rug out from underneath of them in year two or year three with these massive, you know, uplift contracts and then continue those steps like you talked about where it comes down to license changes and things like that. Um, you know, there's, I, I see a couple of aspects to that. Number one, uh, the, the country that you and I reside in is a capitalist country and publicly traded companies. Um, some of it, I kind of look at it and think, of, well, for a publicly traded company, what do you expect? And that's that's sort of par for the course with a publicly traded company, um, as disappointing as it is. Uh, <clears throat> but on the flip side of this, I, I think that you know the the problem it encompasses not just these vendors, but it also encompasses the open source community themselves, and it encompasses the the uh, the, the the commercial consumers. Um, I, I think that um, the combination of the consumers and the open source community with what consumers are not naturally willing to contribute just based upon um, their initial cost savings from coming off of these commercial platforms uh, and not necessarily reinvesting some of those savings back into the community. And then what the community is willing to do in terms of addressing gaps in the software creates the environment where these vendors either fill in power or like they have no choice but to use marketing tactics, use business tactics, resort, you know, start looking more and more every day like a commercial software vendor. Yeah. And I mean, I think though, you know, all the different components that you mentioned, mm-hmm. each one of them has the power to really make or break the entire community. Yeah. And that's a that's an interesting position, right? Because the more centralized control, the more difficult it is, um, mm-hmm. you know, to to kind of break the mold and to 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 keep things going, yeah, if absolutely. one of those pieces you know falls down, and you know we've seen with whether it's you know MongoDB or you know other companies, they tend to control their community very tightly, and they even say mm-hmm. things like, "Don't really care about innovation." We care about our innovation, what we do. And we've seen even Oracle in the past where they've rewritten patches or you know, community contributions because they want to maintain IP. So then they have control on how they change things in the future, give them options in case they need to change things or move things um, in a different way. Mm-hmm. And this kind of like controlling, stifling you know, thing is, is, is a problem in, in many, many cases. But it not only kills the innovation, it potentially limits, you know, their their future options, right? I mean, it, yeah, I think I think right now what we've seen is, and, and I've mentioned this a couple times in a couple different venues. I don't know if I mentioned it in the blog, but we've seen that none of the current companies that are in this open source space that are selling databases that are commercially out there that, that, that have gone IPO or that have gotten tons of funding, none of them are profitable. 
yeah. right? They're all chasing that profitability. I like to call it the eventual profitability model, just like eventual consistency and no sequel. <laughs> it's eventual profitability. If we just keep on adding more customers, eventually it will work out in the end. And I'm worried that that business model is going to eventually fall. And it's going to drag a lot of really good open source projects with it because people who are dedicated to the community aren't necessarily going to get the same sort of traction or recognition that they would um, if those companies were successful and, and did make a, a, a proper go of it. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot of this new model and this new trend, it's, it's shareware. It's not open source, it's shareware. You know, if you, you know, I'll use the old example, right? I mean, I used to play Doom and I had the shareware version of Doom, but if I wanted to unlock the rest of the levels, I'd pay for it. Yeah. And it's that, that limited version, limited feature set, you know, if you want to play, you have to pay type of mentality that I think is really dragging us down at this point. Well, it, it's funny that you mentioned that. Um, it's a model that has been around since the beginning of tech in our era, uh, in this oh, moment, yeah. at least. I mean, and and it's one of those things that, you know, people do to repeat the past. Uh, you look at what happened in the dot-com era. I mean, it was exactly that model, just pumped up on steroids and, you know, um, followed by hundreds of companies. You know, I remember the day when pets.com fell. And... and <laughs> Like I remember that day too. Yeah, I remember what I was doing on that day. But this was the entire basis of that entire economy. I think Amazon is a miraculous story that they actually survived it. You know, they were one of the only, you know, between you know eBay and and um, and Amazon. Those were the you know two big giant you know uh, eight hundred pound gorillas that came out of it. But just about everybody else, the vast majority of everybody else, crashed and burned. And they were all following that exact same model. You know, if we can reach a critical mass of users, if we can reach a critical mass of online engagement, then profitability will be there. And you know, it's a false, it's a false, um, false hope. It's a false story. It's a false trail to, to be running down. I hate to use a newsy like external thing, but it's it's the bubble, right? It's a bubble that's going to burst eventually, and that's not good. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, you know, and I want to comment on one of the other things that you mentioned about, you know, the community and those out there in the community and, and good projects and everything. I think it's really important for us to actually um, define the community and get a good perspective on who is the community. You know, uh, I don't necessarily see these companies who are following these business practices as the community. You know, there are a lot of companies that are producing good open source products that are good community members that are part of the community. <clears throat> um, this goes back to the, you know, your, your analogy of, you know, these, these people that are wearing the veil, uh, you know, if you are doing everything in your power to monetize in the ways that you described in, in your, your previous discussions, and shut out contributions of others. You are by definition not behaving as a community member. You know, you are taking the attributes of what it means to belong to that community and trying to monetize them for yourselves. And I completely agree that there's very little redeemable about that. Uh, again, 
um, like about publicly traded companies, you know, um, they're beholden to, they're beholden to boards of directors and there's not a lot that can be done about that. But in that definition of what is the community, there are a lot of people out there. Um, and this is where I bring in the commercial consumers and say, Hey, you know, where's your stewardship? You know, let's just say that you were able to save eight figures in a single year. And this is my bias, you know, um, don't you think that if in a single year you were able to lower your um, total cost of, you know, every dollar that you bring in that much and you've retooled your environment that much, do you have a sense of stewardship to contribute something back to the infrastructure that's enabling you to do that? You know, that savings, you could, there's lots of things that you can do with it. You can give it back to your shareholders, you can give it back to your own consumers in the form of, you know, lower prices. Um, but I, I, you know, I kind of want to put out there that it should be existential to these commercial consumers that they contribute something back in the form of stewardship back to the community. This could be, uh, you know, identifying the good players in the market and patronizing their services. Or it could be something like I mentioned Facebook before, you know, but um, like what they've done, you know, if you have the ability, if you've got a farm of a thousand MySQL servers and you're running your uh, online business off of it, you know, you have the ability with the headcount that you have internally to contribute code back to maybe um, uh, fix some bugs yourself and, and, and send that back to them. But too often than not, I'm seeing a pattern in the community where, um, sorry, when I say community, I mean the uh, uh, the um, body of commercial consumers where they want to take that initial cost savings and put all of it to the bottom line and just run for free from now on. Um, that I put out there on the same level of activity as the vendors. Well, it reminds me of uh, BitTorrent, you know, you know, yeah. torrents, right? <laughs> you've got cedars and you've got leachers. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and so it just so happens that a lot of, enterprises don't necessarily contribute externally to open source. Now that has changed. I, I, I want to be open about that. I have seen a lot of companies at least say that they're more committed. And as I've gone to conferences, whether it's all things open or other things, you start to see more companies there, but a lot of them view it as this is a recruiting tactic, right? So they, they, they do some of this to recruit. Nobody um, says that they can't gain additional benefits. There are lots of benefits to gain from being a part of the open source community. Yeah, there are, there are, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it is an interesting, you know, kind of like, you know, space because you do get a lot of companies who come in and, and do that. But what I don't think people realize is you don't need to contribute code to contribute and make right. the community better. Education, write a blog, give a conference talk, talk <laughs> about how you did something. Maybe you want to give a tutorial. Maybe you want to try something new. Maybe you developed a script to do something that seems mundane to you, but you want to share it with other people because maybe they have that mundane need as well. There's lots of ways to contribute. And I think that a lot of people think sometimes it's just code and it goes beyond that. Yeah. It goes way, way, way beyond that. And, you know, I actually, I do want to highlight a point that you just said as well. Um, there are a lot of really, really responsible companies out there who are um, really doing a great job of supporting the open source community. We put on, you know, a conference twice annually where we have a collection of these companies come and do the types of sharing that you're talking about. Um, and as you mentioned as well, you know, uh, Percona itself 
has customers across the board who are all very active in the community and who are interested in making sure that um, this type of alternative uh, continues to gain steam and continues to move forward. Okay. Well, Brian, I'm going to let you have your the final thought because we're running out of time here. So is there anything else you want to recap or, or follow up on? I know you wanted to plug in a, a job opening that you have. Yeah. So a, feel free. <laughs> that's a great, great uh, segue. Thank you, Matt. Uh, so this is my actually one shameless plug out of this that I asked for permission to do ahead of time. Um, Percona is hiring. We have many, 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 many positions that are open across the board in lots of different organizations. I personally have one open uh, in the solution engineering organization. So if you have experience as a solution engineer, it doesn't necessarily have to be in open source technologies, but that's a huge plus. Uh, Reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's uh, LinkedIn forward slash Brian.David.Walters. Happy to chat with you and uh, uh, looking forward to... uh, Another great year uh, working with open source technologies and uh, being part of the good guys team. All right, Brian. Thanks a bunch. Appreciate you hanging out with us today. Yeah, take care, Matt. This has been the Hoss Talks Foss. I'm the Hoss, Matt Yankovic. I want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and listen to future episodes. We appreciate everything that you do to make open source awesome. Thank you.